This is literally everything, 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 everything. If you're like me, you have a pile of books older than your grandma's mom and taller than the Empire State Building just begging to be read. To top it off, you probably add several books to said pile every week, yet somehow find yourself in a reading slump with nothing to read. Uh Uh-huh, I see you. In an attempt to tackle my never-ending pile of books, I decided to start a podcast with hopes of making some sort of dent in said pile, and maybe help inspire your next read. I'm Odell. Welcome to Just Read It Already. again. How's it going, friends? I hope your Monday is off to an amazing start and the spring season is kicking off right for you. At the time of this recording, we're just a few days into spring here in Portland and it snowed today. Crazy. Didn't stick, but it was a bit weird to walk out of the grocery store to snow falling at the end of March. But that's the Pacific Northwest for you. I'm just sitting here sipping on a glass of chai tea, ready to talk about some books. I just finished reading What Have We Done by Alex Finley. It was a fun read. I'll have a review of that for you coming up in a few weeks. And I'm about to start reading What Happened to Ruthie Ramirez. Looks like it's going to be a quick read. Sounds fun. I'm looking forward to that. But before we jump into this week's reviews, let's take a look at some of the books that released this week. Our first book is The Only Survivors by Megan Miranda. I've read a few of her books. They're really good. Really good mysteries. The blurb for this one reads, A mystery about a group of former classmates who reunite to mark the 10th anniversary of a tragic accident, only to have one of the survivors disappear, casting fear and suspicion on the original tragedy. Love it. Next is The Nanny by Lana Ferguson. It's a contemporary romance, and the blurb for this one reads, A woman discovers the father of the child she is nannying may be her biggest only fan in this steamy contemporary romance by Lana Ferguson. Sounds saucy, y'all. The next one is Everything She Feared by Rick Mafina. It's a mystery about a teenager who falls off a cliff while taking a selfie, but the more detectives dig into the accident, it seems she may have been pushed by the kid she was babysitting. That sounds interesting. I might have to check that one out. Next, we have The Cuban Heiress by Chanel Clayton. It's historical fiction, and the blurb reads, In 1934, a luxury cruise becomes a fight for survival as two women's pasts collide on a round-trip voyage from New York to Havana. Next, we have Dark Angel by John Stanford. It's a mystery. The synopsis reads, Letty Davenport, the tough-as-nails adopted daughter of Lucas Davenport, takes on an undercover assignment that brings her across the country and into the crosshairs of a dangerous group of hackers. Next, we have Life and Other Love Songs by Anissa Gray. The blurb reads, A father's sudden disappearance exposes the private fears, dreams, longings, and joys of a black American family in the late decades of the 20th century in this page-turning and intimate new novel probably going to check that one out. Next, we have The Seaside Library by Brenda Novak. It's a contemporary romance, and it reads, There are secrets that bring friends together and others that drive them apart. Sounds interesting. Next, we have Yours Truly by Abby Jimenez. 
a novel of terrible first impressions, hilarious second chances, and the joy in finding your perfect match. Next, we have The Trackers by Charles Frazier. It's historical fiction. And the blurb reads from the New York Times bestselling author of Cold Mountain, a stunning new novel that paints a vivid portrait of life in the Great Depression. And last on my list for this week is Homecoming by Kate Morton. It's historical fiction and a mystery about a murder in Southern Australia in 1959. It's described as an epic novel that spans generations. Homecoming asks what we would do for those we love and how we protect the lies we tell. Now, my only pre-order this week was Megan Miranda's The Only Survivors, but I also purchased Delicious Monsters by Lizelle Sambury, The Collective by Alison Galen, and Malibu Rising by Taylor Jenkins Reid. I'm going to tell y'all, Taylor Jenkins Reid and Colleen Hoover are like my jam right now. Can't get enough of them. And then to my TBR pile, I added The Book Eaters by Sunyi Dean, The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones, and The Once and Future Witches by Alex E. Harrow. All right, that's what we got for new releases this week. How about we jump into the reviews? I'm going to start off with Heather Gay's memoir, Bad Mormon. It was released by Gallery Books on February 7th, 2023, and the synopsis reads, Drinking and tweeting meets unorthodox in this vulnerable memoir about the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City star's departure from the Mormon church and her unforeseen success in business, television, and single motherhood. Straight off the slopes and into the spotlight, Heather Gay is famous for speaking the gospel truth. Whether as a businesswoman, mother, or television personality, she is unafraid to blaze a new trail, even if it means losing family, friends, and her community. Born and bred to be devout, Heather based her life around her faith. She attended Brigham Young University, served a mission in France, and married into Mormon royalty in the temple. But her life as a good Mormon abruptly ended when she lost the marriage and faith that she had once believed would last forever. With writing that is beautiful, sad, funny, and true, Heather recounts the difficult discovery of the darkness and damage that often exists behind a picture-perfect life, while examining the nuanced relationship between duty to self and duty to God. Exposing secrets she once held sacred, Bad Mormon is an unfiltered look at the religion that broke her heart. A revealing and ultimately hopeful memoir, Bad Mormon is a captivating read in the vein of Untamed, Educated, and Me Talk Pretty One Day. Y'all, I love me some Heather Gay. Now, surprisingly enough, I am a huge Real Housewives fan, or maybe not surprisingly for those who know me. Put me in a room with some Chinese takeout and endless replays of Real Housewives or RuPaul's Drag Race, and I will be in heaven. I will admit, though, I held out on watching Real Housewives for the longest time. My friend Aaron, who is my co-host on Six Degrees of WTF, the true crime podcast, and then my future co-host of the Gen X podcast, Back Where We Belong, was a fangirl of the Real Housewives since the very beginning. She constantly tried to get me to watch it. I refused. And then in 2020, the pandemic happened and I had watched pretty much everything that I could get my hands on. So I decided to give it a shot and I binged like 12 seasons of Beverly Hills, I think. Couldn't get enough. So then I binged New Jersey. And then I saw that there was a Salt Lake City franchise, and being that I grew up Mormon, and in southeastern Idaho, which is basically Utah, I had to give it a shot. I immediately became a Heather Gay fan within like the first 15 minutes of the first episodes. 
Holy hell, is she relatable. <laughs> Especially to me. Former Mormon, yep, had that in common. Self-deprecating sense of humor, for sure. Slightly awkward, tendency to say the wrong thing at the right time. And ridiculously loyal, even to people you know you probably shouldn't be loyal to. Check, check, check. She is like the straight woman version of me. So it was a no-brainer that I was going to buy her book and devour it as soon as it was released. In fact, I read it and then I bought the audiobook and listened to that. And I love the audiobook because Heather reads it herself. I highly recommend listening to the audiobook version if you don't watch Real Housewives of Salt Lake City or know who Heather is. She has this distinct way with words. And hearing her read her book adds a layer of enjoyment that you don't get from reading the book itself. And I'm not saying at all that the book isn't enjoyable. It totally is. I'm just saying that listening to Heather read it just elevates it. And it's super fun. If you are an ex-Mormon like me, you'll find yourself nodding along as Heather describes growing up in the church. Now, my family was more Jack Mormon, meaning we were all baptized into the church. We would go to the occasional function. We would let the home teachers and Relief Society ladies come in to chat sometimes. Other times we'd just flip off the lights and pretend we weren't home when they were knocking on the door. My dad drank beer. We drank Pepsi and Mountain Dew like it was going out of style. So yeah, definitely had the caffeine thing going, which was a no-no. And we rarely went to church. As you listen to this, if you were a Jack Mormon like I was, you'll feel a sense of relief of never getting as entrenched in the religion as some folks do. I found myself nodding along when Heather mentioned some of the thoughts that went through her head. And I also found myself shaking my head at some of the crazy things that happen in the temple. Now, I never went on a mission, nor did I get married in the temple. They don't let gays do that, so I didn't get my magic underwear. I never experienced some of these things, and after reading about it, I'm really happy that I didn't go that far. I think the most heartbreaking moments of the book were hearing about the failure of Heather's marriage. When Real Housewives of Salt Lake City starts in the first episodes, Heather is already divorced. She's raising her three beautiful daughters by herself while running a business and kicking ass at it, I might add. But hearing how the marriage dissolved in the book and what she went through to keep her and her girls afloat is really inspiring. It was also fun to get a behind the scenes look at how the show was cast and who almost didn't make the cut. If you're an ex-Mormon or a Housewives fan, this one is definitely for you. I gave it a solid four out of five stars on Goodreads. All right, we're going to take just a quick break, and then I'll share my thoughts on Jennifer McMahon's The Children on the Hill and Heather Darwin's The Things We Do to Our Friends. We'll be right back. All right, the next book I'm going to chat about is The Children on the Hill by Jennifer McMahon. It was first published by Gallery Scout Press on April 26th, 2022, and was a Goodreads Choice Award nominee for horror that same year. The synopsis reads, A genre-defying new novel inspired by Mary Shelley's masterpiece Frankenstein, which brilliantly explores the eerie mysteries of childhood and the evils perpetrated by the monsters among us. 1978. At her renowned treatment center in picturesque Vermont, the brilliant psychiatrist Dr. Helen Hildreth is acclaimed for her compassionate work with the mentally ill. But when she's home with her cherished grandchildren, Vi and Eric, she's just grand, teaching them how to take care of their pets, preparing them home-cooked meals, 
providing him with care and attention and love. Then one day, Gran brings home a child to stay with a family. Iris, silent, hollow-eyed, skittish, and feral, does not behave like a normal girl. Still, Violet is thrilled to have a new playmate. She and Eric invite Iris to join their monster club, where they catalog all kinds of monsters and dream up ways to defeat them. Before long, Iris begins to come out of her shell. She and Vi and Eric do everything together. Ride their bicycles, go to the drive-in, meet at their clubhouse in secret to hunt monsters. Because, as Vi explains, monsters are everywhere. 2019. Lizzie Shelley, the host of the popular podcast Monsters Among Us, is traveling to Vermont where a young girl has been abducted, and a monster sighting has the town in uproar. She's determined to hunt it down because Lizzie knows better than anyone that monsters are real, and one of them is her very own sister. The Children on the Hill takes us on a breathless journey to face the primal fears that lurk within us all. Now, the moment I read the synopsis, I knew I had to read this book. I remember reading Frankenstein when I was like eight years old. I was far too young, but I loved it. I couldn't wait to see what this book had in store. Now, as the synopsis implies, the book is told in alternating chapters, some from 1978 and the others 40 years in the future. And when we first meet Vi and Eric, they're living with her grandmother who works at a psychiatric facility in Vermont. Their house is just on the other side of some woods from the facility, and while their grandmother is very loving, she takes great care of the kids, they are not to bother her while she's at work. Now, Vi is pretty precocious, and of course she's going to snoop, and she discovers some journals where her grandmother has written about Patient S. So, when Gran brings home Iris, a young girl who is covered in scars, can barely speak, Vi agrees to treat Iris like a sister and takes great pride in helping her grandmother by reporting back on any strange behavior or any progress that Iris makes. But Vi's curiosity eventually gets the better of her, and as she digs deeper into who Iris really is, she quickly begins to wonder if maybe her grandmother is into some creepy shit, and what she eventually learns will change her life forever. Now, running parallel to this story is the modern story of Lizzie Shelley, who we figure is probably Vi 40 years later. Something happened to Lizzie when she was younger that made her change her name. She's now a monster hunter, has a popular podcast, she even consulted on a popular TV show, and for years she's been hunting what she thinks may be a modern monster, possibly a serial killer, who has been abducting young girls. But they do so while posing as local urban legends around the country. So when a young girl goes missing in Vermont, not far from the infamous psychiatric facility incident from years before, Lizzie knows she has to return and put an end to this once and for all. Now, finding out what this is, is half of the fun. This is one creepy page-turning read. As I mentioned before, I'm pretty good about figuring out the who in the whodunit, but this one had a nice twist that I didn't catch until just maybe a page or two before the big reveal, so kudos to the author for that. But after the reveal, I thought it kind of fizzled for a while, but then all of a sudden there was another revelation right at the end that turned it completely around for me. So if you like a good creepy book that will keep you guessing, I highly recommend this one. I gave it a solid four out of five stars on Goodreads, and if I could have given half stars, I would have gotten a four and a half. 
Okay, our final book for the day is The Things We Do to Our Friends by Jennifer Darwent. It was first published on January 10th, 2023 by Bantam Books, and the synopsis reads, Edinburgh, Scotland, a moody city of labyrinthian alleyways, oppressive fog, and buried history. The ultimate destination for someone with something to hide. Perfect for Claire, then, who arrives utterly alone and yearning to reinvent herself. And what better place to conceal the dark secrets in her past than at the university in the heart of the fabled cobblestoned old town? When Claire meets Tabitha, a charismatic, beautiful, and intimidatingly rich girl from the art history class, she knows she's destined to be friends with her and her exclusive circle, Rafish Samuel, shrewd Ava, and pragmatic Imogen. Claire is immediately drawn into their libertine world of sophisticated dinner parties and summers in France. The new life she has always envisioned for herself has seemingly begun. And then Tabitha reveals a little project she's been working on, one that she needs Claire's help with. Even though it goes against everything Claire has tried to repent for. Even though their intimacy begins to darken into codependence. But as Claire starts to realize just what her friends are capable of, it's already too late. Because they've taken the plunge. They're so close to attaining the things they want. And there's no going back. What is the cost of an extraordinary life if others have to pay? Reimagining the classic themes of obsession and striving with an original and sinister edge... The Things We Do to Our Friends is a seductive thriller about the toxic battle between those who have and those who covet, between the desire to truly belong and the danger of being truly known. Now, the synopsis of this book really intrigued me. I like books where the outsider meets a group of friends who welcomes them into their fold, and then they realize that maybe they've gotten themselves into something a little too deep. That's what I thought I was going to get, but it didn't quite deliver what I was expecting. Our main character is Claire, who at 16 was kicked out of the house and disowned by her parents. Now, whatever it was that she did was enough to make them send her to live with her grandmother and never want to see her again. I'm always confused when this happens in a book. I mean, it's one thing for the grandparents to take in a kid because their parents are inept, but it's completely different when the kid is a total asshole and then the parents send them to live with their elderly grandparents. Why would you do that? Unless you were also a horrible teenager and you figured they were able to get you straight. So if you send your kid to them, then maybe they can set them straight too. I don't know. Doesn't ever make sense to me. But anyway, we spend most of the book trying to figure out what it was that Claire did that made her parents disown her. She's plenty paranoid that her new friends might find out. But then she also thinks that maybe they know what she did. And potentially, that's why they brought her into the fold. But she's not really sure if they're trying to blackmail her or if they like what she did. Now, I really liked the premise. I liked that Claire always seemed just slightly unhinged, but really wanting to get her shit together. But what bothered me about the book was the slow pace. The only way I can describe it is, and bear with me here, once when I was like 14 or so, I lived in Idaho, as I mentioned earlier, I had come up to Oregon to visit my cousins, and my cousin and I were riding back to Idaho with a family friend of her parents. We were three hours into a six-hour trip, the transmission on their truck went out, and so we couldn't go over 40 miles an hour. So it basically took us twice as long to get to where we were going. We knew we were eventually going to get there. It just took forever. 
That's what this book felt like to me. I also felt like we were often going in one direction and then all of a sudden we went in a completely different direction. And then before you know it, we were back on the original path. But despite some frustration and the uneven pace, the characters were all complex and broken, which I love. I liked where we ended up. I just wish the ride to get there had been a little smoother. So I gave this one a three out of five on Goodreads. Honestly, it's closer to like two and a half, two and a three quarter stars. It was well written and I liked the characters and I liked parts of the story. I just wish it had been a little tighter. All right, that's all I have for you today. Now, don't forget to check out Back Where We Belong when it launches on Wednesday, May 3rd. We've been dropping some pre-launch episodes, which are just recycled episodes of an old podcast that we did. But on some of those episodes, we talked about movies from the 80s, which is part of what Back Where We Belong is going to be. So far, we've dropped episodes where we discussed The Amazing Grease 2 and Footloose. And coming up this Wednesday, you can hear our thoughts on our rewatch of Flashdance. Now, I hope to see you next week when I'll share my thoughts on You Should Smile More, The House in the Pines, and Daisy Jones and the Six. And I'll be talking about the book versus the series. So tune in for that. Have a great week. We'll see you next Monday. Thank you.